Welcome to the Church of the Living God Mount Sterling podcast. We hope you are blessed by this message. For more information about our church, follow us on Facebook by searching for our page, Church of the Living God Mount Sterling. We would love to connect with you, pray with you, and hear what God is doing in your life. Now grab your Bibles and let's get into God's Word. And so are you ready for the Word this morning? Amen? All right. Turn with me in your Bibles to the very beginning, Genesis chapter 2. Very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 2. And we're going to start in verse 18. I had been studying this concept out a little bit, and the, the Lord just, he just spoke a word to me. And I, I was like, well, Lord, you know, what do you want me to speak on? And he said, you already know. It's already been stirring in your spirit. You've already been looking at it. I want you to bring this word out. And so I want to minister a word to you that's going to parallel the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it's going to show us some things that will draw us closer to the heart of God, right? That should always be the aim. So Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him or comparable to him. And the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he, God, took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this, this, this is now bone of my bones flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. I want to bring a word this morning that's titled, From His Side. From His Side. Let's pray this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I thank you that you are in this place. I thank you, I thank you that we feel your presence Lord, as we've lifted your name up, you have come into this place, and your presence is here with us. God, I pray that we would continue to lift you up. And as the word of God is preached this morning, I pray that it wouldn't be me speaking, but it would be you speaking. That you would give an utterance of your Holy Spirit, that it would go deep into our hearts. Lord, let us take this word, let it grow us closer to you. I pray that we understand you even more from hearing what you have to say today, God. Let us all just continue to seek after you, to grow in the things of you so that we can impact people for you. We love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Okay. So God, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth, right? He created the light, separated the light 
separated the waters from the land. He made the beasts of the field, birds of the air, fish in the sea. He made everything in this sequence. And then it says, you know, then the Lord said, let us make man in our own image. He said it in the plural sense because he is a triune being, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He said, let us make man a triune triune being with mind, will, and emotions, spirit, and soul, body, and flesh. So you have your body, you have your soul, which is your mind, will, and emotions, and you have your spirit, triune. God said, we're going to make man in our image. So God got down in the dirt, and where he had been speaking and creation had been forming, when he formed man, he got his hands dirty. And he got down and he took man and he formed him from the dust, and he kissed and breathed his life, his spirit life, into the man. And the man became a living creature. That's Adam. But then God said, well, I don't want Adam to be alone, so I'm going to start bringing him creatures that I've created that will help him. So God lines up the animals, right? He's marching the animals past Adam, and Adam is operating in dominion and authority that was given to him from the beginning when he was created. So Adam starts to name the animals. And as each passing animal comes by, I think Adam probably got a little excited and said, ooh, I wonder what's coming next. Maybe this animal will be somebody I can talk to. Maybe this animal will be somebody that can help me in the garden. But as every animal passed and Adam named them all, not one was found that was comparable to him that could help him out. So the Lord said... I'm going to remedy this problem with another creation. And he put Adam to sleep, and he pulls from Adam, from his side. It says that God took a rib. That rib in the Hebrew is the same word for side. So some scholars will say that it wasn't necessarily a rib that God took, but that God took from Adam's side and sealed up his side and created woman. And when, when God brings her to Adam, Adam says, wait a minute, this isn't like the animals I've been naming. This is different. She is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She looks like me. She talks like me. God couldn't find a partner good enough in the animals, so he took of me and formed a new creation, and from my flesh, he created new flesh, and she was birthed from Adam's side, and he said, I'm going to call her woman. She was named Eve, and Adam and Eve walked together in the first example of a marital partnership in the Bible. It's the first marriage that happened was Adam and Eve were brought together in union, Okay, now a lot of people, you know, want to jump to, yeah, and then Eve ate the fruit and, you know, all that stuff. Well, here's the thing. In our Bibles, we read it very quickly. You know, God creates Adam and Eve. They're in the garden. They're tending to the garden. The serpent comes. He tempts Eve. Eve falls. Adam falls. They get kicked out, right? Very quick succession. But we don't know how long Adam and Eve were in the garden. And I'm a big fan, and this is me personally. I'm a big fan of the belief that Adam and Eve spent 
countless years in the garden, operating in dominion. They were nurturing the creation that God had given them. I believe that Adam and Eve had a thriving relationship and that they walked with the Lord in the cool of the evening. So we want to jump straight to, and then Eve fell, but let's give her a little bit of grace. She had a long time, I believe, with Adam where they had a prosperous marriage. And even after the fall, they were together and they produced children and their children became the generations that we all spawn from. So God creates Eve from Adam's side because he needed it to cost Adam something for a a bride to be created. He needed to take from Adam and it needed to make it special to Adam. It needed to be a creation that didn't look like a cow and that didn't look like a camel and didn't look like a bird or a whale or a fish or a donkey. It needed to look like Adam. And if Adam is created in God's image and Eve is created from Adam, then Eve is created in God's image. So Eve was something special. It cost Adam part of his side, but it gained him a partnership in marriage that had never been seen in all of creation. He created, the Bible says, he created him a helpmate. Marriage is something that is still so sacred today, so special. If a man finds a wife, what he finds is someone who at times even thinks opposite the way he thinks. Because she's a helpmate. And yes, there is submission to authority, but let me tell you something. Husbands, you have got to listen to the voice of your wife. She will see things from perspectives that you can't see. God created it that way because she is a helpmate. She is there to help you. And, and we need to, to honor that reasoning why she was a worthy partner. It wasn't because she was dead weight in the relationship, right? She was a helpmate. That's what the Bible calls her. So from Adam's side, Eve was, was created. Now, let's, let's go to John. We're going to skip to the New Testament. John chapter 19. And as you turn there, I want to remind us, everything in the Old Testament isn't just a bunch of fables and made-up fairy tales. They were real stories of real people. And every story points to Jesus. Noah's Ark is a picture of Christ's salvation. The ram caught in the thicket when Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac, that, that, that ram that was used in place of Isaac... It's a picture of Christ, right? The Old Testament, in all of its stories, it points to the New Testament. It points to a Savior, a Messiah, who would fulfill the law, who would fulfill every prophecy, and who would be the picture of God's love from the beginning in Genesis to the end in Revelation, okay? So let's think about that as we read this next passage. John Chapter 19, this is the story of Jesus' crucifixion on the cross from the perspective of 
the disciple John the Beloved. It says, so when Jesus, verse 30, so when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Tetelesta is the Greek word there. It is finished. It, it means I'm not finished. It is finished. Jesus wasn't saying this is the end of me. Jesus was saying, this is the end of sin's power, death and the grave. It's finished because I won. Oh, it may not have looked like it on Friday, but Jesus already knew that Sunday was coming. So Jesus declares on the cross, it is finished. Not I am finished. The work is done forever. There is no, well, Jesus did some good stuff on the cross and then things are continuously going to get better for sin. And, and No, 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 no. Sin is defeated. The enemy is conquered. He was disarmed by the cross and the resurrection of Christ. Christ, fulfilling prophecy, decreed, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up or surrendered his spirit. Therefore, because it was the preparation day or the day before the Sabbath... That the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day or a holy day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Now, if you're not really familiar with crucifixion, it was a very agonizing death. But it was a very slow death. So what happens is you hang on a cross and your lungs are are, there's so much pressure on your lungs and your heart that it starts to collapse. So in order to breathe, you have to push up against the cross. You have to push up against the nails that are holding you onto the, to the wood of the cross. You have to push up. It, it even said that your back would get splinters because of how hard you'd have to push up to breathe, right? Where are you pushing from? You're pushing from your core and from your legs. So they're pushing up to be able to breathe. And they do this not for hours, but for days, it's days of excruciating torture. And after a while, you get so tired and the, the stress on your heart and your lungs is so great that your heart eventually stops beating. And that's how you die. You don't die from blood loss. You, you die from a very excruciating multiple day death. But because the Jews who had orchestrated this crucifixion, right, the two thieves and Jesus that were crucified, it was them wanting the Romans to put them to death. They said, well, we can't leave these bodies up here hanging in torture during the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a holy day. It goes beyond our uh, beliefs to do anything on the Sabbath. So let's break their legs, which would stop them from being able to push up. Because if their legs are broken, they have no strength to push up from their legs, and they'll suffocate and their heart will stop faster. That way they, they can take their bodies and they can remove them before sundown on the preparation day because that's when the Sabbath starts, okay? So a little bit of background there. It says, then the soldiers came and they broke the legs of the first and of the other, so the two thieves, that were crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, Jesus didn't die of crucifixion. Jesus surrendered his life. He said, it is finished. He bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit, right? He died precisely when he intended to die. He surrendered his spirit. So he was already dead 
when the soldiers get to him. So they don't break his legs, but instead, verse 34, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And this is where John shifts the narrative a little bit, and John goes into first person, or sorry, he goes in a third person perspective and says, and he who has seen has testified. Who's he talking about? Himself. He says, hey, I'm writing this, and the guy who saw this is the one who's writing this and testifying. And his testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth so that you might believe. John wanted no bones about it. He didn't want this story to come secondhand, thirdhand. Well, why didn't the other disciples write about it? None of them were there. They all abandoned Jesus when he was on the cross, and the only ones that were there were the women, his mother, and John the Beloved. Peter had denied Christ. He was in hiding. The rest of the disciples were distraught. They thought, our Savior, this Messiah who's going to come in and overthrow the Roman Empire, is hanging dead on a cross. That didn't go like we planned it. So now we're in trouble because we're his followers, and so they were all in hiding. But John said, I don't want you to mistake this. I saw the soldier pierce his side. I saw the blood and the water pour from his side. You can trust me that the one writing this, John, is telling you the truth so that you'll believe. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him who they pierced. Now, a couple scriptures come to mind with that. One of them, Isaiah 53, 5. In one of the translations, it says, he was pierced for our transgressions, right? And, and we, we see that, but there's actually a verse, Zechariah in chapter 12, verse 10, that talks about him being a fountain to wash away sins with blood, with water, him being that fountain, his side was pierced as a fountain of blood and water poured out. It was a picture. It was a fulfillment of prophecy, but it was also a picture. Blood of Jesus is the redemption for our sins. The blood of Jesus covers our sins. It washes us white as snow, right? Like the prophet Isaiah said, though our Though our sins be like scarlet, he has made us white as snow. The blood that flowed from Jesus is our redemption of sins. The water that flowed from him represents life. In his surrender of his life, we gained eternal life. So his blood and the water that poured from him as that fountain that was prophesied in Zechariah is fulfilled. And the, the, the apostle John is saying, hey, look. I saw it with my own eyes and I wrote it down so you would believe that Jesus did this for you. The blood and the water, that fountain pouring from his side. Now, I want to I wanna explain something to you real quick. Because yes, that was a fulfillment of prophecy, but there's another reason specifically why blood and water poured from Jesus' side. And to understand that, you have to know a little bit about the Hebrew culture of the Old Testament and how the temple was built. 
So real quick, follow me here, because this is so important. They built the temple, and the temple has different sections, right? It has the altar where the sacrifices are made. It has the place for the showbread. It has the, the, the priests that tend to it. It has inner court, outer court, and it has the Holy of Holies. That is where the Ark of the Covenant, which represented God's presence, dwelt. And it was veiled by a huge veil. And only the high priest at appointed times in the year could go through to the Holy of Holies. And they even used to tie a rope with bells to the priest. So that when the priest went back into the Holy of Holies, they would hear the jingle. And if they ever didn't hear the jingle, it meant that the priest had entered into God's presence unworthily and they had the rope so they could pull him out. So the temple is designed, and the altar is built so that people could bring their animal sacrifices, right? Because the law demanded animal sacrifices for different things. Doves, you know, goats, uh, lambs, spotless lambs, cows, you know, different things for, for different reasons. But at appointed times, around appointed feasts, all of the Jews that lived anywhere in the land not just in Jerusalem, would journey on a pilgrimage to the temple and they would buy up their sacrifices, their cows, their lambs. They would bring them into the temple and the priest would slaughter the animals on the altar. Now, we think of that in terms of like, you know, a family brings an animal it's slaughtered. Yeah, but that happened all day long. It happened all week long. It's a never-ending cycle of animals being slaughtered on the altar to represent the sins of family by family by family. So they said that thousands upon thousands, even hundreds of thousands of animals would be sacrificed in one gathering of these pilgrimages. If you think about it, especially with the way that they did the, the animal sacrifices, that's a lot of blood. It's a lot of blood that has to be poured out. So what they did was they built a drain underneath the altar. They built a drain underneath the altar, and when they sacrificed the animals, the blood from the animals would run down off of the altar, and it would drip down into the floor, into the drain, and that drain would carry the blood away from the altar. That drain would carry the blood out of the side of the temple and connected to the side of the temple was a river that would lead from the temple out of the Kidron Valley. So if you are a Jew and you're headed to the temple, what you see with your eyes is you see the smoke and the incense rising from the temple as you know sacrifices are being made. And from the temple, you see blood and you see water pouring out of the side of the temple and running away from where sacrifice is being made. You think, wow, they created a drain for a practical purpose. Yeah, but who designed the temple? God gave them the specifications for the temple. He gave them down to the detail of what the design of each curtain, each pillar, each step. He wanted everything exactly as it should be. Why? Because God's really detail-oriented? I mean, okay, yeah, but it goes so much beyond that. 
God has a picture and a purpose of intentionality on every single thing that he does. And when God spoke to the Hebrew people and said, build a temple for my presence to dwell in, build an altar where sacrifices are coming, and oh yeah, by the way, that blood that's going to drip down from the altar, let it drain out of the side and mix with the water that flows from the side of the temple. Because one day, my son is going to hang on a cross for your sins, and blood and water are going to fall from his side and it's going to be the picture of sacrifice the place the place where the presence of God dwelt in the temple now embodied in the person of Jesus Christ whom the spirit of God dwelt in and he said I'm going to put my temple on a cross for you And I'm going to let the sacrifice on the altar of the cross demonstrate what you've been doing for years that was never enough to cover just for your family. But I'm going to take a spotless lamb and I'm going to make it cover not just your family's sins, but the sins of the past, the present, and every sin that would ever be committed in the future. I'm going to do it all in the picture and the person of Jesus Christ, and blood and water are going to fall from his side. Yes, to fulfill prophecy in Zechariah, but to give you the picture that Jesus was the temple. Jesus said, you tear down the temple, and in three days I'll rebuild it. And all of the religious leaders laughed and said, do you know how long it took us to build this temple? Not realizing that Jesus was speaking of himself. Jesus, the temple of God hanging on a cross, his side is pierced, and from him the blood of everlasting life, the redemption of our sins, the healing of the nations, that blood flowed with water from his side to give us the picture of the temple. Michael Culliano says this, when we look at the cross, we see our salvation. But when God looked on the cross, he saw an altar. Jesus, that sacrifice for us, blood and water from his side, representing the the slain lamb, the sacrifice for us, but also the embodied picture of the temple and the sacrifices throughout the ages that had happened. Because, yes, there there was a temple when Jesus walked the earth, but there were multiple iterations of that, starting with a tent. A tabernacle. It had been built up. Jesus is the very picture of that. And what Jesus did was, through through the cross, through relationship with him, he made us to be temples. Now the Holy Spirit dwells in us. We are temples because of his sacrifice. The word side, when it says they pierced his side, in the Greek it's the same equivalent word for ribs or side that Adam had in Genesis. You see, when God wanted a partnership for Adam, he pulled from Adam's side and he created something that looked like Adam. When God wanted to rescue us, the church, the bride of Christ, he pulled from Jesus' side to create something that looks like him. That's me and you. We're called to look like him. And just as Eve was birthed from the side of Adam, so the church is birthed from the side of Christ. Because it was on the cross that we were set aside 
that we were joined to him in matrimony. We are the bride of Christ. He's the bridegroom. We are called together in the same picture of Adam and Eve in the beginning. It points to Jesus on the cross and the sacrifice of his side that brought us into marriage with him as the church. Turn with me to Ephesians 5, uh, verse 30. Ephesians 5, verse, chapter 5, verse 30. It says, for we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. What did Adam say that Eve was? Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus, and he says, hey, we, the church, we're members of his body because we're of his flesh and we're of his bones. For this reason, parallel quote to Genesis, uh, this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That was said in Genesis. Jesus preached on it in Matthew. Now Paul is declaring it after the cross. This is a great mystery, he said, but I speak concerning, not Adam and Eve, Christ and the church. Just as Eve was bone of Adam's bone and flesh of his flesh, created from his side to look like his image. So we are bone of Jesus' bone, flesh of his flesh, the church, pulled from his side so that we can look like him. We are the bride of Christ. Even the creation of Eve from Adam's side was a foreshadowing of the birth of the church from the side of Christ on the cross. The important thing to know is a few things changed for Adam. Once Eve was created from a part of Adam, Adam was now no longer whole unless he had Eve. Can I tell you something? Jesus gave everything. He died on the cross to bring us in relationship with him. Because he said, God, if we created man in our image, if we're never with them again, then a piece of us is missing. It cost Jesus everything. And when we were birthed from his sacrifice, he now said, I'm married to you, the church. And if I don't have you, then I don't feel whole. That's why when we walk in relationship with Christ, and we act like we can just take it or leave it, thank goodness that he doesn't have that perspective because he can't stand for you not to be with him. Jesus does not approach your relationship and say, eh, it's a regular Thursday, I'm not feeling it today. Jesus said, unless you're in my presence and I'm with you and you're with me, I don't even feel like I'm complete because I need you. What is a marriage if it only has a groom and no bride? It's not a marriage. We don't go celebrate weddings where the groom shows up and the bride leaves. That happens sometimes. Guess what doesn't occur? A marriage. And even the statement, what's the statement that we call it? That person got left at the altar. Because even marriages take place around altars. It's a picture. It's a picture from the very beginning. A marriage is not complete unless it has a bride and a bridegroom. Jesus said, I gave everything for you. 
Will you be with me? Because unless you're with me, then I'm not complete. When Adam had a part of himself sacrificed to create Eve, when Eve, if, if Eve isn't around him, he's not whole. But with Eve by his side, the two of them had dominion. Christ and his sacrifice birthed the church, bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh, just like we read in Ephesians. That means that Jesus wants nothing more than the church by his side. Because we are the body of Christ. When Eve was created, it meant that human life could no longer be reproduced without intimacy. True life cannot be reproduced without intimacy with Jesus. God doesn't want a relationship with you where he's up somewhere far away on a judgment seat watching for when you mess up and you're down here on earth feeling all alone like, man, I just hope I can make it through the next day. That is not the kind of relationship that Jesus paid the ultimate price for. Jesus paid the price so that intimacy could be restored with us. So that in marriage there is intimacy and in marriage with Christ, there is an intimacy in our relationship. And it's called the secret place, and we sang about it this morning. Take me to that place, Lord. To that secret place, Lord, where I can be like you and you can make me like you. That only happens through intimacy. The reproduction of life within us, the God kind of Zoe life that he wants for us, is only possible in intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. We are the bride. The church is the bride. He's the groom. He paid the price. He's waiting for us to step up and say, I want relationship with you. And what's funny, just kind of in a, a practical standpoint, if you have been married for any amount of time, you'll realize that the longer you're married, the more you and your spouse start to share similarities. You start to have the same hobbies. You start to, to even think and joke the same way. I can tell you this. There are things that I would have never liked before I met Megan. There are things that she would have never liked that before she met me. We were into different things. We had some similar hobbies, sure. But together as a married couple, now we share similarities. We share hobbies. Sometimes I'll say a catchphrase, and then she'll say it a month later, and I'll be like, oh, wow, you sound like me. Right? We joke we laugh. Why? Because in a marriage where relationship is cultivated through intimacy, then image bearing takes place. And we start to look like one another. And thank goodness that as the church, we are married to a perfect groom who is spotless and perfect in every way, who has proven his love to us already. So as we walk with him, and as we are in intimate relationship, as we are married to Jesus Christ, guess what's going to happen? You start to talk like him. You start to look like him. You start to like the things he likes. You say, man, Pastor Patrick's crazy talking about praying for people in Kroger and stuff. That's just wild. I could never do that. Yeah, you could. Because the more you walk this thing out with Christ, you realize that's what he wants to do. So all of a sudden, it's not 
well, I'm too intimidated to pray for somebody in Kroger. It's Christ wants to pray for somebody in Kroger, and he's going to use me to do it because I look like him, I talk like him, I act like him, and it's time to start being him to everyone on earth. That is who we, in marriage to Jesus, are called to be. The picture in Genesis of Eve being pulled from Adam and the picture on the cross of the church being pulled from the side of Christ to fulfill the temple, the law, the prophecies, and to create a marriage between Jesus Christ and the church. That's what it all points to. And the more deeply you walk in relationship with Him, the more the things that you thought you cared about will start to fade away. There's an old song. It says, And the things of earth um, shall grow faintly dim. Right? They grow dim. I don't think that means because you're dying and everything, you get tunnel vision and you're like, oh, I'm closing my eyes and everything's going dark. I think when you have your eyes on him, he's so bright, everything else can't help but grow dim. Because the things that you cared about are only there in the marriage if he cares about them. So that, that show that you watch that you're like, eh, you know, I'm trying to do the right thing. I probably shouldn't watch this show, but I really like it. The more you spend time with him, the more you're going to be like, I don't even really care about that show. I don't even really care about that music. I don't really care about those, those, those people who want to just gossip all the time. I'm just going to go be with the Lord. Right? It, it, I think we, we've struggled, the church has struggled with when somebody gets saved, we bring them in, they feel the presence of God, they have an encounter, they get saved, and the first thing we say is, okay, it's awesome that you accepted Christ. Now go get rid of all of your friends who don't know Jesus and stop cussing immediately and stop watching those shows and stop listening to this music and become a different person. And, and here's the thing, we are a new creation in Christ, but salvation is a process that you walk out daily. I don't need to tell you to cut that stuff out of your life if the more you spend time with Jesus, he starts to soften your heart and you start to say, man, this is pointless. I can feel Jesus when I listen to this kind of music and when I listen to this kind of music, eh, I might get hyped up, but it's temporary and it doesn't mean anything. And the more I start to spend time with him, the more I start to say, Jesus, what do you want to listen to in the car today? Jesus, what do you want me to read today? Jesus, who do you want me to pray for today? Listen, if you try to drum up all these works by cutting all these things out of your life overnight, it will crush you, and the enemy will come while you're beaten down and convince you that what you're doing is fruitless and it wasn't real and nobody loves you, and all of a sudden, we celebrated the person who got saved on this Sunday, but next Sunday when we don't see him anymore, and the next Sunday, the next Sunday, it's like, well... I guess they just gave up on God. No, we, we told them you have to do this to escape hell, but we didn't explain to them that they were birthed from the side of Christ in a moment of such intimate relationship that all Jesus wants to do is spend time with them. And the more they spend time with them, the more that they'll start to talk like him. I think we got this idea of you just accepted Christ. That's awesome. Now, if you say one single cuss word, we're going to condemn you. Listen, I'm not condoning cussing. I'm saying if you really accepted Christ, then as you walk, cussing will become less of a priority in your life, and suddenly the only thing that will start to flow from your mouth will be blessing. 
But we convinced people that you got to change yourself overnight. We'll say, come as you are, but you better leave a completely different person. Jesus said, I just want your heart. Just give me your heart. I'll do the rest. I'll change you into me. And that comes through spending time with him. Just like in marriage. The more we spend time with the person that we have our eyes fixed on and that we're in love with, the more we will do things to please that person. I watch baking shows that I thought, this is silly. Who wants to watch a baking show? And the next thing I know, here we are a couple years later, and I'm watching baking shows, and Megan's not even home. I'm like, man, those British people are weird on Great British Breaking Show. I guess I'll turn it on. I'm, suddenly, I'm not watching it because I want to make her happy. I'm watching it because I got into it, because she was into it, right? I don't know if I can read the Bible every day. I mean, I, like, I, I, I read a chapter, and I, I just I check out sometimes. I get bored. I just don't know what to do. Spend time with him. And the more you do it, the more you'll start looking forward to it. And the more you'll start reading the word, and he won't even have to prompt you to read the word. What are you doing? I don't know. I'm reading the Bible. Why? Because I really want to. Because I want to know what he says about me. Because I want to hear from him. So I opened up the Bible because I want to hear from him. Not because I have to check a box that says I read the Bible today. If you're checking boxes to please somebody, that's not intimacy. That's not love. Jesus doesn't want that from us. He just wants us. Right? Jesus just wants us. He paid for us to be with him. So let's do that. Let's give ourselves to him. Let's be his helpmate. Let's bear his image. And let's... There, there's... There's an old saying, and I just want to end with this real quick. Fast story. I want to give you the real quick synopsis version. There were two guys a long time ago. They wanted to evangelize this island that was gripped by slavery. And they said, we want to find a way to get there, and we want to find a way to share Jesus with these people. The problem was there was a landowner who owned the land on the island, and he was an atheist, and he said, nobody can come to my land that believes in God. I don't want to hear about God. I don't want you to come to my island. You're not going to come and preach Jesus. I'm only going to have slaves, and I'm going to work, and that's it. No one else is allowed to come here. So these two men who had such a burden for the mission field said, how can we get Jesus to these people? And they came up with a plan. They said, there's only one way. We're going to sell ourselves into slavery. We're going to go to the island as slaves. And at night, when the landowner is not around, and we're in the bunks with the other slaves, we'll have free reign to share Jesus Christ with them. But what's it going to cost us? Well, we're going to have to work. We're going to be punished, mistreated, beaten down. We're going to be treated awful. And because we're going to be sold into slavery, we'll never be able to come home. This ain't a missions trip where you go to Kenya for six months, build an orphanage, and come back home. This was, we're going to the mission field to never come back. We will never see our families again. 
So they came up with this plan. They told their families. Their families were devastated. They couldn't understand. Isn't there another way? No, there's no other way. We love Jesus so much, and we might be the only chance these people ever have of hearing about Jesus. So they sold themselves into slavery, and on the boat that was taking them away to that island where they would live and die as slaves, they said this one phrase, that we would be the reward of Christ's suffering. I want to live my life that my life shows him that I'm the reward for his suffering. If he paid such a high price for me, then me showing up to the relationship seems like the least I could do. Let everything that I do, every, every way that I speak to somebody, every way that I pray and read the word and, and worship him, let every moment of my day, even when I'm at work, even when I'm at the grocery store, let my life be the reward of Christ's suffering. That's a heavy statement. And you can't pray it unless you mean it. But that's what he paid for. He paid for you and I. Stand with me this morning.